Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is Ash Wednesday, a day that marks the beginning of of yet another season of Lent, a day that is set aside to remember all that this season of Lent is all about. There is, of course, a somberness to this day and, and to this season. We receive ashes upon our forehead, after all. We remember that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And why do we do it? Why do we sit here with ashes upon our foreheads? Well, it's tied, of course, to a practice that's found all throughout the Bible. It's when someone was in mourning or in repentance for their sins. They would would put on sackcloth. They would sit literally in ashes. And they would do this as a sign of, of humility, of repentance, of a recognition of an utter helplessness before the almighty and holy God. And we realize we come to God with with nothing of value in our hands. We couldn't possibly. In fact, the only things that we bring to God, the only things we carry, are our sins. Our sins which result in death, and our death which results in ashes. But today, Ash Wednesday, we also know that we do not receive these ashes without hope. After all, we don't smear our whole faces with them, or we don't put them on haphazardly on our faces. No, there's a reason we receive these crosses, in the, or the ashes, in the shape of a cross. And that's because in Lent, we always have in mind, we realize we are always journeying towards Jesus' passion that we recognize during Holy Week. His passion, that is his suffering and death on the cross. And the reason that Jesus suffered and died was to take the place of helpless, ashy sinners like us. To pay the price for us, to forgive our sins, and to give us his righteousness in return. We wear these ashes because we truly repent of our sin. We sorrow over how serious our sin is. But we wear these ashes in the shape of a cross to rejoice that by the cross of Jesus Christ, we know we are saved. That's what our epistle reading this evening says from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting there in verse 20. It says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We know that that at the beginning, as recorded in Genesis, we were created perfectly by God. We were part of his, his good and perfectly ordered creation. But as human beings, we chose to listen to the lie of the serpent. We chose to believe and trust that our way is better than God's way. We know better than God. We would be better off if we didn't listen to God. And therefore, on account of our great sin, we were separated from God. We needed reconciliation between us and God, between us and creation, between us and one another. The devastating effects of sin in this world and in our lives cannot possibly be quantified. But God, who could have chosen to just 
walk away and start over at that point. He had a plan and a promise for us, a plan and a promise to reconcile us. And so what he chose to do is truly the overarching theme of the entire Bible, the overarching theme of his activity throughout history, what he chose to do in light of our sin made all the difference. And that is when we find ourselves furthest from God is when God chooses to draw closest to us, to reconcile us. He makes that most abundantly clear in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who became one of us. If I were to ask you this evening to think of the best person, the best person in history who has ever walked the planet Earth, well, we might all think of a wide variety of people, maybe family members or friends or loved ones or role models. We have truly great people in our lives. But of course, We're in church, aren't we? So we know the answers to these kinds of questions, including this one. So I'll ask you, who is the best person in history? Jesus. But now, if I were to ask you to think of the worst person you can think of, the worst person in history who has ever walked this planet Earth, again, we might think of a wide variety of people, hopefully no one in your family or circle of friends, But perhaps evil people from history, criminals, or or even uh, dictators from, from nations, things like that. But would it surprise you? Would it shock you? If I said the correct answer to that question is also Jesus. Because that's what the Bible says. In the very next verse in our epistle reading, Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you see, that's the shocking truth of the the thing that Martin Luther calls the great exchange that happened. Jesus, who of course was the best person, the perfect person, the sinless son of God and son of man, he chose to become the epitome of sin taking all sin, all crime, all evil of all people of all time, and he became it so that he might die for it on the cross. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. He makes us righteousness, the Bible says, even though we could never deserve that for a second. But that's what mercy and grace is. God's unwarranted, undeserved, radical gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. Jesus has reconciled us to God through the cross of Christ. And that's why today and and throughout the entire season of Lent, we once again gather around and under Jesus' cross to repent of our sins, yes, but also to rejoice and to give thanks Looking forward to the the day we know we will celebrate on the other side of Lent, that day of Easter when we celebrate resurrection and life and joy. But it's important that we don't rush things. That's what our world 
tends to do these days, I find, rushing from point A to point B without ever stopping or taking time to consider what it is we're doing. But it's important for us today, for instance, to just sit a while in these ashes and that we take a season of Lent so that we might further and more deeply consider the passion of Christ, the suffering and dying of Christ, and all that he chose to do for us. During our midweek Lenten services this year, and I hope that you're able to join us for those every Wednesday at 7, we're going to walk through the Gospel of John, chapters 18 and 19, walking through that passion of Jesus Christ, and it's a series we're calling Following the King, because we'll be giving close consideration to everything that Jesus was willing to do for us, everything that he was willing to become for us so that we may be reconciled to God. Particularly, we'll be considering that shocking revelation that we mentioned where the divine majesty and glory of Jesus never goes away, of course, but that he intentionally and purposefully hides it under his suffering and death for us, so that we might be saved. And we see it begin tonight with Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we heard from John chapter 18. It's interesting, the passion of Jesus actually begins and ends in a garden. Two different gardens, of course, the garden in which Jesus prays before he is arrested, and the garden into which his body is brought to be laid in a tomb. But for now, Jesus is in the olive grove, the Garden of Gethsemane, on the west-facing slope of the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. Jesus, that night, had finished washing his disciples' feet. He had instituted the Lord's Supper. He had prayed for his disciples. And yet he knew that one of his disciples, Judas, who had left earlier and arranged his betrayal, now was coming to that place that, that they knew so well because they had spent so much time there. And Judas was coming with Roman soldiers and officers of the Sanhedrin, and Judas would indicate a which man to arrest by kissing him. And that's when Jesus, knowing all of this, addresses the mob. And I'd like us to pay careful attention to what Jesus says here. It's well noted that in the Gospel of John in particular, that Jesus gives us the seven famous I am statements. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And these seven statements throughout the Gospel of John are key to understanding John's Gospel, but also to understanding who Jesus is and what it was he came to do. And very importantly, they also call to our minds the conversation that Moses had in the Old Testament with God himself in the burning bush. When God said, gave him his name, said, I am who I am. And by Jesus echoing those words, Jesus is saying he is the same Lord, the same God, Lord of Lords, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. 
What's sometimes missed, in addition to these seven I am statements in John's gospel, what's sometimes missed are the additional times when Jesus also says, I am. And he does. He doesn't say, I am something, like I am the door or I am the way. That, he does do that in those seven times. But additionally, he simply says, I am. And this gets somewhat obscured in our English versions, which will often translate it for grammatical sense, I am he. We heard that in our gospel reading tonight. But you see, that actually misses the significance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus, when he says this, in no uncertain terms, is claiming to be God. For instance, back in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Or in John 13, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. And then here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to say that divine name again two different times. And when he does, each time, two very different things happen, which is amazing. And it's important that we understand why. The soldiers approach Jesus. Whom do you seek? Jesus asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they declare. And Jesus says to them, ready for it, I am. And with that word, Jesus reveals the truth of who he is. And he demonstrates the power of his divine majesty. That word knocks them over. At that word, all the soldiers draw back and fall to the ground. It's like they're hit by a tornado. Torches drop. Swords and spears go flying. Men falling all over one another in a dust, a cloud of dust. This is a miracle, a wonder, a sign. One little word and they topple like bowling pins. But they are not destroyed. They stand up, dust themselves off, pick up their spears. A little dazed, they look at Jesus, who again says to them, Whom do you seek? Perhaps they would have been a little more tentative this time. They maybe looked at each other, no one wanting to say it. They gritted their teeth, they grasped their swords, they they planted their feet. Jesus of Nazareth, they say again. And Jesus says it again. I already told you, I am. Am. But this time, nothing happens. No one falls over, no one teeters. The first I am sent them flying. The, the second I am doesn't move them at all. The first I am shows that he is God in the flesh. The second I am shows that Jesus is choosing not to use his divine power to save himself. The first I am demonstrates that Jesus could avoid the cross. The second I am shows that he won't and that he is willing to be led like a a sheep to be slaughtered. The first I am is a miracle of God's power. The second I am is a miracle of God's weakness. And it's the second I am. That's the greater miracle, the greater wonder, the greater gift. After all, the one who spoke at the beginning of the universe at creation, and when the sun and the moon and the stars all jumped into their places, he is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The one who spoke and all that exists came to be, he is about to be arrested. 
This one speaks, and a band of soldiers is repelled and knocked over, and he is for a moment safe. And that's not a surprise. But then this one speaks again, and nothing happens. The soldiers are still standing. They approach Jesus. Nothing happens. They touch him. Nothing happens. They grab him and bind him. Nothing happens. They lead him away to Annas and to Caiaphas. They strike him in the face. They spit on him. They pull out his beard. They strip him. They whip him. They take him to Golgotha. And nothing happens. They crucify him. And there is no resistance, no fighting back, no knocking them over with his word. Just weakness and suffering. Behold this miracle of weakness. Behold this wonder of humility. Behold the suffering of God for sinners. The suffering of God for you. This is, after all, why Jesus came. Why God took up our flesh and blood so that there would be a back to whip and a brow to crown and hands and feet to nail and blood to spill. To be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the king of all creation, the great I am. But he is also the king who bled and died, who became the powerless I am. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this Lenten season we once again find ourselves following the King. And we ask him, Jesus of Nazareth, are you the Savior? He says, I am. Jesus, are you friend of sinners? He says, I am. Am. Jesus, are you our light and hope? He says, I am. Jesus, are you for me? And he says to you, I am. In his name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.